Coming up, what an excellent day for Pazuzu. Well, howdy, folks, and welcome to Minute 5 of The Exorcist Minute, a show where we endeavor to examine, extrapolate, and excavate The Exorcist Minute by Terrifying Minute. My name is Lester Clark. And I'm Keenan Diaz. And we will be your holy guides on this journey through what some have called the scariest movie of all time. All right, so our minute begins with uncovering of that artifact that we saw in the previous minute. And it ends with our man in khaki sitting alone in a dusty roadside tea house. But before we join him for a cup of tea, I think it's finally time to talk about what we found in that hole in the previous minute. We get a close-up as he's dusting it off and some really great subtle acting from Max von Sydow uh, here as recognition dawns on his face. It's very brief, but I really like how his whole demeanor changes as he realizes what he's holding in his hands. And again, that makeup is so convincing. This is a close-up, and I still can't tell that he's actually a younger man under there. Now, this makeup is done by the illustrious Dick Smith, who, uh, Keenan, you might know a little bit more about uh, Dick Smith than me. Right, exactly. So Dick Smith is one of the big pioneers of makeup. Uh, he was the mentor to uh, Rick Baker, who is now the biggest name mm. in makeup uh, effects. Wow. And, uh, you know, when you think of makeup in The Exorcist, you'll, you'll tend to think of, say, the transformation that Reagan will go through later on in the film. Right, right. Uh, yes, but Marin is a complete makeup job as well. And what Dick Smith was working on before he got to The Exorcist was rather than uh, the makeup that could come before, which uh, was often stunning, say, like in Planet of the Apes, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. which is John Chambers' makeup job, uh, right. where, where he was creating prosthetics that were basically plates, um, mm. right, to really transform the face into something else and then and then blending the plates into the actor's normal skin tone and that kind of right. thing. But what Dick Smith wanted to do was to create makeup effects that were more in pieces rather than plates that mm. would allow the actor to act through them. Uh, so I saw a really cool quote from Laurence Olivier, who loved makeup and that sort mm. of thing, and come from mm. the stage tradition, right, doing Richard III and that kind of work. Right. And he said to Dick, Dick, it does the acting for me, you know, these things, these, uh, these <sighs> multi-level, uh, three-tiered, usually, makeup effects. Um, yeah, so we will see a lot of his work later on and uh, you might be interested to know that Dick Smith's uh, previous job was on The Godfather doing the oh makeup work for Marlon Brando who we can't escape from. He, uh, he haunts this show. I swear, haunting of it, right? And then Little Big Man. I don't know if you've seen Little Big Man, Lester. Uh, I haven't known? yet. Not yet. Oh yes, but that is Dustin Hoffman playing the only the only white survivor of the uh, Little Bighorn attack, and oh. so he is playing the oldest man in America. He's like 130 years old, and so it starts with that. And then later he would do something similar with Amadeus. To talk about Amadeus first, because I remember we have Salieri, and he's playing older in the very beginning, and also right. the end, like the book ending of right, the, the frame of sequence. The film. Yeah, but even then, like even that makeup compared to Max von Sydow's old makeup is mm -hmm. yeah, wow. Well, you know, it, it is so interesting. We said this before, but if you if anyone at home wants to look up what Max von Sydow looked in the, uh, his older life, I mean, he yes. looks just like this, as opposed to Marlon Brando, when he did get into his 60s, does not look like Vito Corleone in The no, Godfather. No, he does not. Um, uh, F. Murray Abraham, who is still working on things now, he does not look like old Sally Harry and on the right, right. <laughs> They've aged very well. And Max yeah. von Sydow looks exactly like he does in The Exorcist in Star Wars 7. 
Oh, and um, one one last thing hmm. I wanted to mention about Dick Smith. We'll come back to him, but yes. uh, obviously because his work is so key to the film. Um, hmm. He he also uh, claims to have invented the the blood squib. So a squib is something that you put, say, under the clothes or under oh. makeup, um, uh, like a prosthetic makeup on an arm or a chest or something that so that it can re reproduce gunshots, right, and in explosions of blood. So that's one of the things that he says. Um, we had had blood squibs before, so this might be hmm. a case where um, where we had a bunch of people having the same basic idea of mm. what if we had a tiny like firecracker under uh you know some fake stage blood um but he said he invented it which might have been him um you know not being aware of the other technologies that we had as but far back as the 40s and making it up on his own he actually uh, ends up writing a makeup book that i wish i could get but um you know it's like his handbook of makeup effects but now it's like 300 dollars <laughs> because oh there's so few of them out there so i did not buy that one ah mm. <laughs> but yeah so uh we hear a uh, a crack and our man in khaki has finally freed the thing from the chunk of earth. And now we see that it is the stone head of what looks to be a demon. Uh, and this revelation is accompanied by what sounds like the buzzing of insects. Uh, Kina, did you catch that? I, I did catch that. It is mm. it is music of some kind. And then it gradually uh, seems to morph into something that sounds more like insects. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And what's really interesting about this is that we have uh, Father Marin's hands brushing off this dirt and we can see that it's a face. And then just as we get used to seeing the face entire right as the dirt has come off it, that's when we cut. So mm. we don't we don't get a lot of time uh, able to consider it. Uh, most of our time in this shot is is trying to figure out what we're looking at right. and just when we do we cut out of there um and so it's interesting because the human eye in films will try to uh, go to faces it's one of the things that connects uh our interest the most so mm -hmm. things like um, the human face or text or light and color contrast movement um leading lines that we've talked about that sort of thing um mm -hmm. but this one you know we see half of the face or maybe a, a fourth of the face with its eye and all mm -hmm. of a sudden our mind is trying to see the rest of that face we're like give us the rest of that face mm -hmm. <laughs> right and we're working really hard on it um, and so there's this term that's really uh fundamental to things like animation which is uh pareidolia um pareidolia. I'll, I'll spell okay. it so that people can look it up but it's p-a-r-e-i-d-o-l-i-a -E uh -huh. and it's this concept in uh like visual psychology or perceptive psychology where the mind is trying to create um full images out of partial images and this is the kind of thing that makes us see the man in the moon but like so it, it just is evidence right that we're always trying to like fill in the blank there and it's the kind of thing that makes us see smiley faces out of emoji mm -hmm. or emoticons rather it bothers us to not be able to see a full face yes exactly we see faces everywhere i think part of that can also be like maybe survival um, right we need to be able to uh pinpoint uh faces of friends or foes when we're out uh, trying to survive right absolutely so when we when we get half of this eye and we're trying to say like what is this thing and we reveal mm -hmm. more of it and it's looking more and more devilish and then when we finally get the full thing uh you know Friedkin and the editors uh there's like four editors on the exorcist uh <laughs> deny us that and say nope you don't get to look at that we're gonna experience some more of that later on with Friedkin kind of showing us something very very quickly but and before we can register it um it's gone again and did we just see that was that was that was a thing there? that we saw yeah <laughs> um and I like that because so you know this coming out before the advent of VCRs which if you remember, is boxed TikTok content, we weren't able to uh, stop and rewind and look at what we thought we might have seen. Um, we're just 
in the movie theater and we see a face flash by and we wonder if it was just in our imagination. And the only way that we're going to be able to see it again is if we go back and watch the movie a second time, which, you know, of course, is the objective, I guess. Um, <laughs> right. Of course, uh, you know, I, I, I'm a big fan of old game shows and you'll watch like the uh, the twenty five thousand dollar pyramid with uh, Dick Clark. And they'll the, one of the prizes will be like a new video cassette recorder worth a thousand dollars. You know, these are very, very rare technologies. Yeah. And now, Keenan, I think now that we have seen this face, I think we can talk about this thing. Oh, I think I've just been scared of talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> I've been putting it off, talking about the, the pyramid, uh, the $25,000 pyramid and Dick Clark. So I didn't oh. have to talk about this. Well, there we go. But yeah, I think mainly because the movie does not talk about it. Mm. Nowhere in the movie do we ever hear the name of this demon mentioned. And that leads me to wonder what the heck moviegoers were thinking when this thing showed up. Because unless you read the book beforehand, you wouldn't know specifically who this is, which leads me then to think, does it even matter? That is an interesting question. Because yeah, I don't have an answer to that, right? <laughs> because by not explicitly naming this demon and with Reagan later saying, I'm the devil, you could be forgiven for thinking that's exactly what's going on, that Reagan is possessed by the devil himself. And this thing that we're seeing right here at the beginning is either an amulet of the devil or just a foreshadowing to devils and demons in general, but not necessarily the demon that's possessing Reagan. And oh. so- that's that, really interesting. I mean, you know, because of the way that, that movies work rather than novels, we'll assume right. that everything we see is related. Um, exactly. that's, just, that's just how, you know, in a novel, you can have something that's completely unrelated. And and even yes. like modern audiences today, it used to be like a James Bond movie would mm -hmm. open with James Bond going and doing some mission that had nothing to do with the later ones. And now, you know, nowadays, audiences demand that those are related events rather than right. completely unrelated ones. So, yeah, yeah I, I've, I've never thought about that, that, you know, who says that this little thing is even possessing anybody at all. Right. And and so that leads me to wonder, does Friedkin want us to come away saying, oh yeah, The Exorcist is a movie about a little girl possessed by the devil? Because that's kind of what happened, at least at first. The whole hype around this movie is that this girl is possessed by Satan. Every joke, every parody, every pop culture reference, including, you know, the movie Repossessed with Linda Blair. Um, <laughs> oh gosh, that's so sad. Right? <laughs> is is Reagan being possessed by the devil? You know, on um, on the AFI list of the greatest hundred uh, villains and heroes, they have um, you know uh, these these polls that would come out all the time, and they would say, mm -hmm. "Here are the the top fifty villains and the top fifty heroes of, right. of the film." Yeah. And they had Reagan McNeil in the top ten. I think she's ninth, and it's, yeah. it's uh, frequently Reagan McNeil open parentheses, Satan, close parentheses. Interesting. Yes. And you'll still see people um, spreading that, you know, that the top 10, you know, I think that's part of the debate about, um, I think the reason they include that is, well, is Reagan the villain? Not really. It's whatever this demon is that's possessing right. her. And they had to name it and they have named it the devil in many of the, the uh, reporting of that list. Interesting. Or Satan and, rather. Or Satan. Yeah. Right. And folks, you, you might be thinking, oh, well, in the book, I'm sure it's more clear, but no, N no, because even in the book, while yes, this demon is named and it is referred to a couple times, it is never confirmed that this is the demon in Reagan. In the book, uh, the demon does say, I'm the devil when he first meets Karis, the other priest, but then he backs down from that and admits that he's only a devil. But he never explicitly says in the book, yes, I'm that demon from the beginning. Karis glances down and sees a picture of this demon in one of the many books he's studying, but it's just that. His, his eye happens to 
fall on the picture and he reads the inscription and that's it. Um, it's just another picture in one of his many books. He doesn't suddenly jump up from his chair like, oh, it, this is him. Um, <laughs> and it's, it, it, it's weird because neither the book nor the movie do both. The movie connects the stuff in Iraq to Reagan, but doesn't name the demon. So we think it's the devil. The book names this specific demon, but doesn't explicitly connect him to what's happening in Washington. But then again, the book and the movie were widely successful. So what the fuck do I know? <laughs> right. But it, but it, that is such an interesting thing. That's something that I have to take it for granted as much as I've seen The Exorcist. You're right. We take for granted that what happens at the beginning is that Father Marin is trying to do good and doing this excavation to fight evil, but that it unlocks this demon. Doesn't it feel mm -hmm. that way that he's that he's accidentally unearthed this thing or awoken it or, or you know awakened it, and then that causes this demon to escape and go to Washington. There's nothing in the movie that says that, but that's emotionally right. what it feels like just because of the nature of like the chronological, like cause and effect aspect of, of cinema. Okay. So you've touched on another very, very important point that I, I was wondering when we were going to bring this up. I have heard people talking about, oh, this is how it started that, uh, that the men in khakis uncovered this demon. And that's why this is all happening. Um, I never, I never got it that way. Um, Mm -hmm. um, I, I saw it as uh, this demon is kind of messing with our man in khakis and kind of like teasing him. Uh, and meanwhile, uh, the stuff is going to uh, happen later in Washington. Um, and whether it is this same demon or not, he's kind of getting this premonition here in Iraq. Uh, but this is a question, and I guess we have to address it. Is this a case of uh, Jumanji where um, <laughs> now... Now Marin needs to roll a five or an eight. Do you know what I mean? Wait, hang on, let me do that. <laughs> I don't I mean, know. So so your you opinion. You can't just say Jumanji and then move on with the conversation. <laughs> it's just such a funny word. You know, like like Craig Kilborn used to um you, when when he would do sports recaps, you know this before he was on the Daily Show. Mm -hmm. like, instead of like uh, you know, instead of when someone would uh, like do a slam dunk or something, yeah. uh, broadcasters might say like boom shakalaka or something like that, right? <laughs> and so Craig Kilborn just you know he's not he's not he's a sportscaster he's not like the, a comedian host yet, but mm -hmm. he, people would uh, do a slam dunk and he would go Jumanji. <laughs> <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh my God. Just a funny word. There's no it way is. around that. Well, speaking of funny words in the tradition of Jumanji and Boom Shakalaka, uh, I think this is perfect. Uh, so yeah, uh, enough beating around the bush here. Let's talk about this demon. This, of course, is Pazuzu. He is the king of the demons of the wind, hence all those wind references earlier. See? Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, specifically, he's associated with the Southwest wind, which brought famine, drought, and locusts which could be associated with a fly landing on somebody's hand. I don't know. Um, it could also be that buzzing sound we heard when uh, our man in khakis finally uh, uncovers the, the face. Now, there's a lot more to say about Pazuzu, his story, his lore, but it's more relevant to a later scene uh, that is coming up in a couple of minutes. So I think we'll save it for there. But these um, fly noises, of course, I associate flies with not Pazuzu, but with the devil in the West and, and Beelzebub being the Lord of the Flies. Precisely, yes. So we have the Lord of the Flies, Beelzebub. So from there, we get a shot of the sun again, yellow against a red sky. And this is when we first start to hear uh, a sound very faint uh, that's going to be present throughout the rest of this minute. And it's going to get louder and louder as we go. Uh, it's a weird uh, clanking sound. It's much uh, louder in the next shot where we're dropped into the noise and the bustle of this roadside chicana, this tea house. And it is here. 
that our book begins. And I just want to read for you the opening to this book because it's so good. It sets the tone perfectly. I love it so much. Okay, uh, here we go. A reading from the Book of Blatty. Prologue, Northern Iraq. The blaze of sun wrung pops of sweat from the old man's brow, yet he cupped his hands around the glass of hot sweet tea as if to warm them. He could not shake the premonition. It clung, it clung to, his back, to his back like chill, wet leaves. The dig was over. The tell had been sifted, stratum by stratum, its entrails examined, tagged, and chipped. The beads and pendants, glyptics, phalli, groundstone mortars stained with ochre, burnished pots. Nothing exceptional. In a Syrian ivory toilet box, and man. The bones of man. The brittle remnants of cosmic torment that once made him wonder if matter was Lucifer, upward groping back to his god, and yet now he knew better. The fragrance of licorice plant and tamarisk tugged his gaze to poppied hills, to reeded plains, to the ragged, rock-strewn bolt of road that flung itself headlong into dread. Northwest was Mosul, east Erbil, south was Baghdad and Kirkuk, and the fiery furnace of Nebuchadnezzar. He shifted his legs underneath the table in front of the lonely roadside Chaikana and stared at the grass stains on his boots and khaki pants. He sifted his tea. The dig was over. What was beginning? Now that is an opening. I remember reading this book in my college library, reading that opening and thinking, uh, oh, this is more than just a horror story. There's something sad and beautiful here. Yeah, and I think the movie is a little bit like that. You talked about yeah. um, in previous minutes how maybe a more modern horror movie might start with the you know a, a murder or something like that to, mm -hmm. to establish we are in a horror movie, right? Uh, and the opening is able to do both, right? We are mm -hmm. in a horror movie because of the imagery and there's really unsettling sounds, but mm -hmm. this is about an old man at the end of his life who um, is suffering with bigger questions like the nature of evil. Yes, yes. And yeah, we can see that our old man, our man in khakis, is shaken up. He is profoundly disturbed. Even our proprietor notices when he comes over with the tea. We cut from there to shaking hands as they open a small container of nitroglycerin tablets. Now, again, was this common back then to where we would know what this was and what it was for? I'd love to hear from anybody if they know, but I have seen this in movies. So uh, mm. uh, if it wasn't uh, something common in real life, at least was something uh, that people would recognize in movies like Louise Bunuel's Exterminating Angel, uh, where someone has a little silver tablet uh, like mm. this that uh, that looks like a cigarette holder, but it's actually holding his tiny nitroglycerin pills. Yeah. Um, and I think the help of the, the language of the film, it tells us uh, what we need to know. We don't necessarily need to know exactly what it is. I just assumed it was medication to calm his nerves. Uh, the book says there are nitroglycerin tablets, and I looked it up, and those are for the heart. So mm -hmm. already we're getting hints that while uh, this man's spirit is strong, his health is in decline. And again, Max von Sydow does an amazing job with just this little bit of business here, the way that his hand shakes as he uh, tries to sip the tea. And we have a brief shot of some locals eyeing him. Uh, what would you say their attitude seems to be toward toward this guy? 
Well, of course, they don't reveal much. They're just mm-hmm. looking uh, like normal people would. But, um, you know, coupled with all of the weirdness around <laughs> them, mm-hmm. uh, it does feel very menacing, doesn't it? Um, if we, mm-hmm. Out of context, we probably wouldn't get that. And of course, this causes a lot of people to think, uh, you know, that the movie could be Islamophobic or sort of xenophobic mm-hmm. because that is what we're getting. And, and maybe this movie isn't because Father Marin, you know, has um, Arab friends and Iraqi mm-hmm. friends and he's he's learned Arabic and, mm-hmm. and things like that. But, you know, when you when you put that up against, um, you know, dozens of films like this were just you know having a white person in the middle east is scary uh we mm-hmm. sort of combine that yes yes um and we cut back to our old man and it seems like at least physically he's feeling a little bit better but his eyes have this faraway look and we see that he is possessed by something he is in the grip of some a horrible premonition. His eyes are not looking at anything in this world. They're turned inward, fixed on something only he can see. And then we have a seemingly random but interesting shot of a man leading another man who might be blind or perhaps just unable to walk on his own. Uh, and then for just half a second, we cut back to the old man as he sits at the Chicana looking rueful and contemplative. Contemplative? Contemplative. Yeah. Con- con- contemplative. Contemplative? Contemplative. <laughs> Pazuzu. Yeah. <laughs> Boom shakalaka. Boom shakalaka. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and that brings us to the end of minute five. Uh, Keenan, is there is there anything else you wanted to add to that particular minute? I think you got all of it. Okay, I think we got all of it, my friend. Okay, well, uh, Keenan, uh, are you thinking what I'm thinking? I think I am, Lester. Okay, well, folks, until next time, the, the power, power of, of Jumanji, Jumanji compels, compels you. you.